but we'll dig more into like uh, the internet and wh what it means to be alive and whether or not time is real. Welcome back to Royals Weekly, the only Royals podcast hosted by twin brothers with unimpressive facial hair. I am your host, Marcus Mead, joined by my co-host, Mike. Rocking like a week-long mustache here. Gross. It looks gross. I'm looking at it right now. It's lovely. We're going to dig deep into the opening series with you, discuss the role walks have had with the Royals so far, and preview the two series this week. So let's get right into it with this week in Royals baseball. Last week, the Royals went 2-1, and one, winning their first two against Texas with big offensive performances. They lost their chance at a sweep with a real soft dump of a performance today, but we wanted to at least two out of three, and we got two out of three. Mike, who stuck out to you as having strong performances this week? Oh, well, I think you're going to hit on the main one. You stole my guy there uh, in Michael A. Taylor, but um, I'm going to go with Carlos Santana. I was You and I were both, I think, a little skeptical about what he could bring um, driving the ball offensively. But he did have a good week. He was right in the thick of all the rallies, it seemed like. Uh, he did four. He got four walks, um, which is what you expect from Carlos Santana. But he had a 988 OPS. He did hit a double, three RBI. Uh, we knew he's going to be patient, and then we hope for that run production to just keep going and continue. It seems like he's hitting the ball a little bit harder than what he was earlier in the spring. So if he can keep doing that in the middle of that lineup, now we don't know if he'll stay in the middle necessarily. Sorry, we'll know he'll be in the middle. We don't know if he'll stay in the three spot um, as Mondesi comes back and whatnot. But if he can keep doing that, I think he's going to be a great uh, person both for run production. Then with Sal and Solaire behind him, he'll actually score quite a few runs as well. So I'm happy. Yeah, about yeah, running the bases really well too. Took an extra base <laughs> the other another. day. It, yeah, I know. He's just he's surprisingly good athlete for a guy who with his body type. I mean really runs well is flexible and that sort of thing. I think, I think you're seeing exactly the type of hitter we predicted, like the, the one where it doesn't look like he's really going to drive the ball out of the park at Kaufman. He's not like, at least not yet. Um, maybe he finds a surge of power, finds the right launch angle for a while. Up a little bit more. Yeah. It warms up a little, it might help a little bit, although it was really warm in Kansas city today. Um, and so I, I, I'm not super sure he's going to, break the 20 home run barrier even maybe he will uh but if he doesn't at least it's good to know that he's taking these walks he's still hitting the ball hard in gaps and things like that and if he does that that will be enough um as long as he does it frequently enough uh i i did steal your guy i'm going to talk about the person who i think we made a great case for mvp this this uh this series michael a taylor put him in the hall of fame um there was a lot of talk about him Mike gives me a hard time because I was very skeptical of him in our first episode, and I'll explain why I was really skeptical, but man, he put on a show, especially in those first two games. He had two outfield assists. He had two home runs. He just really drove the ball. He had a, uh, a RBI doubles. He was just dri driving the ball all over the field and looking really great at the, at the plate. The thing was, it wasn't just the numbers he put up. It's the way he looked at the plate. He looks like a completely different hitter than he looked like uh, in Washington. And I want to sort of explain why to the audience here so they can understand it. Um, so the big thing about Michael A. Taylor coming into the season was a very inconsistent hitter who struck out a lot, way too much. And previous to being here, he had this giant leg kick that he would utilize as part of his swing. A lot of guys use a leg kick because they think it helps them generate power. They think it helps them engage their backside, which they can then anchor on and crush a ball, right? Um, the problem is a giant leg kick can often cause two problems. 
one, a timing problem, and two, a balance problem. Uh, because you're sta essentially standing on one leg, um, you're, for, a, for a short period of time, your balance can get off. You're, your balance can get very linear. Like you only have one path. It's harder to change and adjust and have a lot of barrel control when you're not very balanced and you're trying to do it on one leg, right? It can also throw off your timing. Guys with big leg kicks are normally notoriously streaky hitters because it, it's harder for them to lock and get their timing locked in and they more easily get out of it too. And so Taylor, he, he changed his swing drastically over the, over the break, over the winter and took away his giant leg kick. Um, uh, what's his name? Alec Lewis talks about it as a toe tap. It's not a toe tap. Uh, it's, it's a heel clip is what he does now. He, you'll see him pick up his left heel and then just put it right back down. And that's sort of his mechanism uh, to help him feel like he's got timing, to help him feel like he's got a little movement to generate power. But it's very uh, calm. It's very, it's no longer I'm off balance on one of my legs, right? Um, and this is helping him tremendously. And I want to give a specific example, especially during his two-strike approach, right? So in, in the fourth inning of, I believe it was game two is either game two or game one uh he goes down o2 right uh he get, and now normally in the past going down o2 meant you might as well start walking back to the dugout michael a taylor because you're about to strike out but in o2 he gets a slider just off the plate he's clearly fooled by it he still gets fooled by pitches out of the strike zone like any hitter might but with his new swing with the additional balance that he has he's able to take a cut get the bat to the ball and foul it off Okay, so the pitcher threw another one even further out, another slider even further off the plate, and he laid off of it, right? So now he's 2-2, and at 2-2, or no, sorry, he's 1-2, and he gets a 95-mile-an-hour fastball in the inner third, right? Because the pitcher now knows, I can't, he's, I've been unsuccessful with two sliders outside, tries to come back inside with a fastball, Taylor crushes it uh, and lines it to center for a single. This was, I think this was game one, opening day. But uh it was just a great example of how like his newfound balance allows him to get to balls on the outer third, or even sometimes just outside the strike zone, which keeps him in more at bats. It keeps him from striking out. And that's really changing a lot of what he's doing at the plate. Um, he looks so different driving the ball the other way, where if somebody threw him a fastball on the outside uh, last year, flailing at it. Yeah. And we saw that he only had one strikeout in the th three games here. Now I don't think, and I'm with you here. I don't think that's necessarily going to translate to a whole lot more walks necessarily because he didn't have any walks in this first series, but it's going to keep him in real at bats. It means that he's going to go deeper into counts. And as that pendulum starts to turn, he gets now a ball. He can lay off that outside pitch. Now it's one, two, instead of oh two. Now it's two, two, instead of two, two, you know, he's getting, then he's getting opportunities there that he wasn't getting. And you and I already discussed this. The power he's been showing is to straightaway center and right center, which is great to see. He may, you know, you may, he may be seeing a ball better as it's traveling more as well. I don't think we're going to see him pull the ball a whole lot at all this year. If he stays in this right approach, I think it's going to be a lot to the center, a lot to right center and left center, but I don't think you'll see him yanking balls into the bullpen and left field, even though, and the good thing is he's got enough plus raw power to really drive the ball, even though, because I mean, I, you look at Bryce Harper as kind of the poster boy example of that big leg kick and big power, but Michael A. Taylor doesn't need that at all to drive the ball. Um, he's got a little natural power that, Hey, stay to center and just stay balanced and hit the ball and it'll go far. 
Yeah, he's an aggressive hitter, so he's not going to take a whole bunch of walks. Um, but the, yeah, like you were saying, this will keep him in a lot more counts. And I think what we'll start to see is, and I think we started to see it in game three as the Rangers started to realize, I think the book on Taylor previously was hard away, soft away, right? Throw him fastballs on the outer third and he's going to foul them off or miss them or let them go because he knows he's not getting to them, right? And then throw them soft away when you're ready to strike them out. But if that's not going to work, they're going to start trying to come inside on him more. And maybe you'll see more pull power from him. Maybe you'll see him pulling the ball a little bit more, or maybe he'll have to adjust again because it might be tying him up inside. But it's really a good, it's a good development to see from him. It's, it's a big step forward. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he continues uh, to keep it going uh, moving forward, you know. But it wasn't all sunshine and, and rainbows for everybody out there uh, on the Royals this week. Uh, the, there were a couple of people who struggled, uh, specifically the starting pitching. And I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, rough, rough three games from the from the starters. Yeah, it was uh, it was really bad. And, and I mean, it was like Doom City opening day there when you're excited to see this new Royals team and there's some buzz about them and all that stuff. Is this the 2013 Royals, you know, kind of the beginning of the turnaround thing? And then Keller comes out and just gets rocked. Mm. Um, he was all over the place. And, and you know, generally, and I'm going to lay this out to the listeners. Generally, I don't listen to the uh, home broadcast. Uh, it's not that I dislike them as human beings. I love Ryan Lefevre. I just, Rex Hudler is a wonderful human being by all accounts, but I can't listen to the man do color for a baseball game. No. But I was actually listening that day. And I think they were actually right on. I think they nailed that. Keller was throwing a little hard and couldn't locate the fastball. I mean, how long, how often do we see him throw 97, 96 and he's up in the zone? I don't think he threw a fastball in the bottom third the whole time he was in there. Uh It was super strange. And that's his whole game. That's like everything he does. And so uh, that was really hard to watch. I thought he might get it back after that first inning, after the Royals came back and scored five in the bottom of the first I thought, oh, yes, redemption chance for Keller, and he just didn't. It never got any better in that first thing. So I'm hoping we can just throw that one out. Mike Miner, he gives up four in that second game, um, but he does go, I think it was, was it five or six? Six. Did he? six. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can say, okay, he's Mike Miner. He might give up four runs in a start. That, that just might be what you get. We didn't see quite as high a velocity as we maybe had heard about in the spring, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't 9394. It wasn't yeah, it wasn't 9091. Um the thing that got me a little bit is we didn't see as much of that big curve that I like a lot. Um he doesn't throw it quite as much as I would like him to, but that's not on neither here nor there. Um but then Singer today uh looked like he was doing really well and then just blam hit a wall. Um and not deep into the game a wall like the third inning fourth, there. Fourth inning a wall. Fourth third inning, inning. Fourth inning, yeah. Um, so he ended up walking, I think, three guys in a row. He throws that one completely to the backstop that bounces back to him. They come out and talk to him and, and let, leave him in for that one more hitter who hits a single and scores two. So um, it was a rough rough outing. And a lot of that goes to uh, free passes, which we're going to hit on a little more later. We are walking. The starting staff is walking way too many people at this point. Keller couldn't find anything control-wise. Um, and then Singer was okay in those first couple innings, but once he hit that wall, he could not throw a strike. And it didn't matter what pitch he was throwing; none of them were strikes. Especially the fastballs were just up, up, up. Once he got to the third or fourth inning, whatever, they took him out. I think it was the fourth. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, the struggle for this week: the starting pitching. It can, and we still won two games. So 
it can only get better from here, I would hope. You know, I don't think Keller's that guy. I think he calms down and starts being Brad Keller again. I think the same is true for Singer. I think he calms down and, and starts being uh, Brady Singer again. I think it's not just opening day that guys feel hyped to come out and, and make a start, right? Like mm-hmm. it's the first start of the season. It's in front of fans for the first time. I think they were all hyped His first to come time out. Ever. Yeah, I think they were all hyped <laughs> to come out and, and start. I think he started pressing a little bit when things started not going his way. Uh, he started to press and maybe lost his arm slot or maybe lost his release point. And that ball just started sailing on him because he was throwing fastballs over the zone consistently. Uh, and so, yeah, it was good to get him out of there. Uh, hopefully he'll rebound. I think he will. Um, I don't think that's a huge issue for him, but because the starting pitching couldn't do much for the Royals, um, especially in games one and three, uh, the bullpen had to really shine and they did, they stepped up in a big way. I know you were really worried about the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Um, and still am. It, and, and you still are. Yeah. Uh, I'm not as worried as you are about the bullpen and haven't been, but they really showed out in uh, this opening series. They carried opening day. I mean, they had to pitch, uh, what, uh, eight, uh, eight innings, eight, eight and two thirds. Yeah. Uh, and so they just, but from everyone, everyone has pitched and everyone has Seven seemingly done years. fairly well, right? Like, uh, like Zimmer had three great innings today, yeah. uh, which was awesome to see. And he's probably your, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh guy out of the pen. Uh, at Brent's, this point, Brent's um, looked pretty good. Brent's today. looked looked good today. You know, Wade Davis gave up a home run, but he looked good in, in a, on opening day. Uh, and you know, you just seen a lot of guys. Uh, Hernandez, Hernandez looked pretty good on opening after day. that. After that first inning, he looked that first phenomenal. Inning. Yeah, and, and they're going to need that. And Junis, I want to talk about Junis because he's yeah. my boy. Junis just looks like a different pitcher. He looks great. And I know they're using him in one inning stints, but I that's really hope question. they consider him for fifth starter. Cause he looks yeah, good. That's my question. Do you think these two one inning stints foreshadow that he's not going to be used as that fifth starter? And plus bonus question, does Hernandez going three that first day tell you he might be? No, I think, I think not the Hernandez piece anyway. I think they they're more likely to put Junis in the rotation than Hernandez. I think you're, we're going to see no matter where Hernandez ends up, you're going to see relievers taking two and three inning stints more frequently this year than you have in past years. Um, So there are going to be guys like Hernandez doing that a lot, but I think I worry that those one inning stints for Junis signal that he's not going to be uh, the fifth starter, especially since he pitched back-to-back days, he pitched yesterday and today. And I don't like that. I, I really don't. He's so effective right now. Give him a ch- chance in the in the uh, rotation. Slider's still deadly. The cutter looks really good, and it's making his fastball play better. His forcing fastball play up, and so give him a shot. Come on, Dayton Moore. Come on, Mike Matheny. Um, I think I think that's a wise move. But we'll see. They don't they don't pay me to to coach the team, so we'll see. Thank God, or Michael A. Taylor would be sitting the bench. I would have given him a chance. I would have given him a chance in spring training. If you if you hit thirteen hundred in spring training with an or a thirteen hundred OPS, you deserve a chance to play. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever platform you use. But especially if you use Apple Podcasts, because it's like where all the cool kids hang out. Uh, it helps people find the show and helps us build a larger community. If you leave us a five star rating and good review, we'll make sure to give you a shout out and read a snippet of your review on the next show. This week, we shine the spotlight on walks, both earned and surrendered. The Royals' offense exploded in the first two games of the opening series by being patient and drawing walks. On opening day, they drew eight walks and scored 14 runs. In game two, they drew four walks and scored 11 runs. In game three, zero walks and only three runs. 
it's not that you have to walk to score, but walks are both offensively productive and a sign that hitters are having good plate appearances. Mike, what do you think the base on balls is doing for the Royals so far this year? Uh, well, so far this year, it's helping them score runs. And we thought that it was going to improve. It had to, as they've mentioned on both the broadcast for the Royals and the broadcast for the Rangers, because I've been listening to the Rangers broadcast. The Royals never rank highly in the league in walks. They didn't when they won the World Series. They don't. They haven't recently either. And so we knew with the array of players they brought in that that was going to improve. 12 walks right now, which is good for 12th. If you said, hey, the, if you said the Royals are going to end the year middle of the pack in Major League Baseball and walks, I think we would have been like, okay, that's quite a bit of improvement. We like that. But think about that. All 12 of those are in two games. That's the first game and the second game because they didn't walk at all today. So it can lead to such a better production and create those rallies that gets you the comebacks in game one and game two. The rally got started on Thursday, opening day with uh, walks. And from guys you don't always see walks, Salvador Perez uh, got a walk in there. Uh, Soler has a higher walk rate, but he also back-to-back walks. I think maybe uh, Santana walked before them too even. Um, And so those walks are what really got those rallies going. And then we had guys knock them in. Heck, I think we even walked a run in that day. So it's going to be important, especially for that top of the lineup, to – put pressure on those starting pitchers by getting deep into counts and taking free passes. That's going to be Yeah, Yeah, it is. And I think watch, if you you watch the game today, Sunday, when we're recording this, you saw a decided shift in patience, right? So there were were a lot of swinging swinging first pitch a lot. They were swinging at balls outside the strike zone a lot. And as a result, uh, Jordan Lyle, the, who's apparently going to win the Cy Young this year, uh, he, went deep into the game with not many pitches. Well, he was done with five and he'd thrown 60 pitches or something like that. You know, yeah. they, they pulled him in the sixth, like after two outs in the sixth, but he only had 70 some pitches at that point. And so they're not working through pitchers. Let's say Lyle was like pitching out of his mind today. Let's say he just had his great stuff today, which it looked like he did, right? Like, but if you're not being patient, if you're not sort of grinding counts, then guess what? That guy's staying in for six, seven, eight, nine innings. Luckily, I'm guessing Lyle wasn't built all the way up because I would have just left him in. Um, well, yeah, so I don't know if they mentioned this on the Royals broadcast or not, but the it was a tandem start. It was designed to be a tandem start. He was only They only thought he was going to go three or four innings because they gave him basically a 65 to 70 pitch limit. And then they were going to bring in uh, the guy they brought in second. I can't remember his name, the lefty. Yeah. Um, but he went, ended up going six and two third because the Royals five and two third. Swinging, sorry, five and two third because the Royals weren't taking any pitches. So yeah, it was supposed to, it was designed to be a tandem start today. The thing about this team is we know that like Royals teams in the past have had success producing runs without taking walks, right? But those were high contact teams. The Royals don't have a ton of high contact hitters right now. This team is designed to take walks. Uh, They're designed to work counts, take walks, get on base that way, and then drive them in with some power, uh, with some extra base power, which they did quite a bit in in this opening series. A lot of home runs, a lot of doubles, but they're not designed to be the Royals of 2014, 2015, who are going to not walk at all, but put the ball in play a lot um, with guys like Escobar, uh, who else was on that team? Low Kane, even even Hosmer. Yeah, Yeah, even Hosmer was kind of that guy back then. Um, Mm -hmm. And so... They're not that team. They're Carlos Santana. They're Andrew Benintendi. They're Jorge Soler. These people take walks, and that's what they're supposed to be doing. And so 
we need to make sure that uh, they need to make sure that they're uh, staying highly attentive to the notion of not swinging at pitches outside the strike zone uh, and know that that will ultimately bear lots of fruit, even if they're not scoring tons of runs early in games. On the flip side of this, the Royals starting rotation has struggled in large part because they keep giving up free passes, right? Uh, in 10 and two thirds innings, the Royal starters have given up nine free passes. Those are walks and also hit batters. They've hit a couple batters this so far. Um, that's not gonna. That's not gonna play. Uh, and that's a big reason why they've sort of given up so many runs. Fifteen earned runs in ten and two thirds for a twelve point six six ERA. That's just. That's really bad. Of course, small sample size, but you know, um, and that those numbers will of course come down. But giving up those free passes isn't going to do it. And you can see it in their command. You could see it in Brady Singer's command today. Salvi would, would uh, set up outside third. Even when, even when Singer was throwing strikes, he, Salvi would set up outside third. Singer was hitting inside third. Mm-hmm. Salvi would set up down. Singer would hit up, right? Like, and it just, yeah. it wasn't where he wanted it to go. Well, even and, when you look at the home run that he gave up, Salvi set up outside corner on a three, one slider. He throws it way on the inside on a three, one slider to a left-handed hitter who golfs the thing 465 or something like that. Um, Spinning slider low and inside to a lefty lefty you might as well just walk it beyond the fence because <laughs> it's gone. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so the, it's command, it's a command issue. It's a fastball command issue for the most part. Yeah. Um, and I think Singer's we saw that fastball with both Keller there. and Singer fastball command was not good for either one of them. No. Um, and for, for Keller, it has to be for both mm-hmm. of them. It has to be singers only got three pitches and he doesn't throw his change up very often. So his fastball needs to be where it needs to be on point or he's in trouble. Same with Keller. Keller relies so heavily on his sinker that if it's not working, if he's not getting ground balls by keeping it in the lower third, then he's in trouble, right? Like yeah. it, it, we're not talking about guys like Max Scherzer, who I could shelve this pitch today and just roll with two other ones that are amazing, right? Like they don't have that, right? Keller is sinker slider. And right now singer is sinker slider as well. Basically it's a two seam fastball, but it works basically the same way. And And so they got to have it. Yeah. What I would like to see with singer, he said he has, he throws so many of those two seam fastballs inside and then, and then they break to the inner half, which I like, I think that's great but I would love to see more that start in the middle and break to the outside. He doesn't do that quite as much as I would like him to, especially to, I'm talking to left-handed hitters here, but I would really like to see that a lot more like have Selvi set up in the middle and allow your pitch to break to the outside. Even if it ends up outside the zone, you're now giving hitters a, a look at something that's coming down the middle, but is on the outside. You're talking weak ground balls left and right. If you can get them to swing at those pitches which I think it is easier to do. So I think he'll get more early count outs if he's doing it that way. Or I'd like to see him do that. The, the thing with both of them, and I'm glad you brought that up, that they're very similar in their profile. Obviously, Singer's going to strike out more guys than Keller. But what um, Do you remember Derek Lowe? Mm-hmm. He was kind of like that in the prime of his career. He was all sinker. Like that's all he ever threw when he was with Boston. And sometimes at the beginning of games, he would not do very well. Like it was like, it was like the, the known, if you're going to get Derek Lowe, get him in the mid- beginning of a game because he's going to be thrown a little harder and the ball's not going to sink nearly as much. Um, don't now, once he wears out a little bit or once he relaxes and settles down a little bit, it can be very difficult to, to get him. So I think that's kind of the key for Keller is if you're going to try and jump on him, you better do it soon and early in a game, let him relax, let him tire himself out a little bit and you're going to get, 
more pitches in the lower half and not leaving that fastball up and up and up and up. Didn't even get a chance to get there on opening day because he was so bad early on. That's a that's a thing with sinker ballers is, you know, what's funny is on Twitter, I just saw a bunch of people being like, boy, Keller's throwing hard. Look at this, you know, 97, you know, 96. And I Ooh. saw him doing the same thing with Brady Singer. And I'm like, that's not necessarily a good thing, everybody. Like, hold on now. We know Keller's really effective 93, 94. Why are we like, now he needs to be 97 and he'll be better, right? His sinker's not going to move more if he's up at 97 necessarily, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he needs to he needs to figure out where he where his bread and butter is. It's in the lower third. And you're right about uh, the Derek Lowe comparison for Keller, at least. Yeah. That's a really good comparison. I think singers, they classify it as a sinker. I think it's more of like a two seam fastball. It doesn't go it, down. It, as it much runs as it. in more than it runs mm-hmm. down. It run, yeah. I should say it runs arm side, which is in on right handers more than it goes down. And so he's not going to get the same kind of ground ball uh, profile as as Keller will. But uh, and he'll get more strikeouts. So it's maybe okay if he throws it a little harder, but I think uh, it's important to realize that once they sort of settle down, get past this one time through the rotation, I think they'll be okay mm-hmm. um, getting uh, back off to uh, back in their zone, back in what's good for them and uh, stop walking the, the entire lineup. <laughs> and that was what happened. They, they were not c- controlling those pitches and it led to giant rallies. So you just have to, you, they have to be in and around the strike zone more. And for Keller, that he didn't even give up a ton of walks. He gave up a couple, but man. Which in one inning was, is a lot. <laughs> he was up. Well, yeah, I guess he was up so much that they were, I mean, guys were just crushing David Dahl. Like, come on. Uh, just killing. I will he's say killed, the, I will say the top series. of the Rangers lineup just went bananas this series. Yeah, like Gallo and Dahl and Lowe, they were just crushing the ball. <laughs> um, so we'll see if that's, that uh, stays the case for the Rangers. Uh, I doubt it, but we'll see. Although, you know, maybe the top of their lineup hits, but the bottom of their lineup, I'm not, not, uh, and that was I'm the not thing wildly optimistic on. In the Mike Miner start, he's sitting there throwing to Joey Gallo with two outs, I think. And I'm like, wait, what are you doing? Like, he, Gallo hit a two run home run off him, I think. And I'm going, everybody after this guy is nothing. Why are you challenging Joey Gallo, the one guy who can hit it out? <laughs> like, well, that's easily. Uh, uh, well, I, I mean, I think him. I think Nate Lowe's after him right now, and he's that's true. He took one out he's, today. He's he's in the lead for MVP. <sighs> yeah, uh, he's he's overtaken Michael A. Taylor. Um, <laughs> and so you know, we'll see. Interesting. It's uh, one get, series. If I if I'm Mike Miner, I'm going to take my chances on Lowe and not I would too, Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I would too. I mean, uh, so we'll see how that turns out. Uh, but hopefully, uh, the starters can get back on track and, and stop walking so many people. The Royals look to continue their winning ways with a two-game series in Cleveland, followed by a three-game set in Chicago against the White Sox. So some important AL Central matchups. This week will do a lot to tell us where the Royals stand in the division. Um, Against Cleveland, this two-game set, it'll be Danny Duffy versus Logan Allen for game one. That's basically both teams' uh, back-end starters right now. Allen is a young prospect for the Indians. He um, had a really great spring training, 14 innings pitched, only a 0.64 ERA. Uh, He hasn't pitched much at the major league level. Uh, He threw like 10 innings into 2020, did pretty well in those 10 innings, but a lot of upside to Allen. I think they're hoping that he um, turns into another one of these Cleveland pitchers who sort of comes out of nowhere and just starts dominating like Shane Bieber has. Um, And Shane Bieber will be the starter for Cleveland uh, in the second start, it'll be a starter or a battle of the number ones with Bieber versus Keller. Uh, Bieber won the 2020 Cy Young, uh, put up an amazing year. 
and so we'll see if Brad Keller can get back on track and maybe the Royals lineup can scratch a few against Bieber. And Bieber had a good first outing. Uh, I think he gave up a couple runs and may have even taken the loss, but uh, I think he struck out like double digit guys or something like that. So uh, he's looking like Shane Bieber at this point. Yeah, Cleveland, not not a, as usual, great pitching staff or good pitching staff, um, but their lineup is not scaring anyone. So they're going to take a lot of losses uh, where they maybe score one or two runs, give up two or three, and uh, they take a tough loss. It's going to be a lot of uh, tough luck losing for their pitching staff, I think, this year because their lineup is bad, like really bad. Um, the two stars of their lineup, Eddie Rosario and Jose Ramirez, that's not scaring anyone when that's the heart of your lineup. When, when it's those two and a bunch of people nobody's ever heard of, um, it's going to be a struggle. And right now those two are the only two kind of hitting. They're not like crushing the ball, um, but they're kind of hitting. Um, and so Is Zimmer uh, not too worried. They're still there? No, he didn't make the – he's like not – I don't know if he's hurt, but he's not on the roster right now. Oh, wow. um, and so, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a little bit of a barren wasteland for the, for the Cleveland lineup but they still have that great pitching and great pitching can beat great hitting. So mm-hmm. we'll see how, how it looks when Duffy takes on uh, Allen and Keller takes on Bieber. I worry a little bit about Duffy, but he, he, he finished the spring strong. So hopefully he can come out with some, some calm for that pitching staff and really uh, give us a chance to beat up on a, on a relatively unexperienced, inexperienced pitcher. Yeah. Um, my, my look is at Keller. He draws the, t- the tough matchup against Bieber, but he's not drawing a tough lineup. So I want to see him in the bottom third. That is it. That is the one thing I'm looking for for him. When he pitches, are those fastballs in the bottom third? Yeah, if he does that, this lineup's not going to do much against him. So uh, yeah. we'll see how that how that goes. Um, there's going to be an off day somewhere in there too. So it's a lot of off days early in the in the year here. Get ready to find something else to do those nights. Yeah, I hate those. Ugh. Um, <laughs> But after Cleveland, uh, they make a trip to Chicago to play the White Sox, who people like the White Sox in the AL Central. Some people are picking them to win the AL Central this year. Uh, A lot of that was before the Eloy Jimenez injury. One of their best players got hurt. He's going to be out for the entire season, it looks like, or four to five months, I think they're saying, um, which is basically the whole season. We'll see if he comes back late and tries to help him help him then now coached by Tony LaRussa, but I think some people are a little skeptical of the White Sox depth. They think that that injury and any other injuries they might suffer are going to expose a lack of depth for the White Sox. Uh, right now, the person taking on their DH role, uh, Yermin Mercedes is how I'm going to pronounce it is on fire. He started the season eight for eight this year. He's DHing for them. Um, and it looks like maybe he'll help make up some of that offensive production, uh, but a talented lineup in Chicago, um, don't have the probable pitchers for them yet, but there's a good chance we face someone near the top of their line or near the, near the top of their rotation. Uh, but a solid, really dynamic lineup with um, Abreu, Jose Abreu, their first baseman, uh, Luis Robert, their center fielder, uh, Tim Anderson, Anderson, their shortstop, just guys who really know how to hit, athletes who know how to hit and know how to hit for power. Robert can run the bases, Anderson can run the bases. Uh, a really yeah. a solid team that a lot of people are picking to finish near the top of this division. And Abreu, just one of the most consistent right-handed bats that there is in the game today. Uh, I really like him. I would have loved the Royals to have him to get him when he came over from, I think Cuba, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. um, and put him at first base. And cause you just know you're getting this, you're getting 285 and 20 plus home runs and somewhere close to hundred RBI. The guy is steady Eddie when it comes to hitting a baseball. So 
Um, and I, and that's the reason that I really still do like the White Sox in the Central. If you were saying, hey, pick, who do you think it's probably going to be White Sox or the Twins? I would take the White Sox, even with the uh, Jimenez injury. I still like them a little bit better. They may have some, and, and you talk about their depth issues there. I think their depth issues may also come in the pitching staff. That's probably where I worry the most about them. But yeah, I still yes. think they're the best in the division. Yes, an update on uh, Mercedes's batting line. He has now uh, apparently not gotten a hit in one of his at-bats. And so he is now, he's hitting 889 with an 889 OBP and a 1444 slugging. So a 2333 OPS. So and the great news is, uh, great news is they, they haven't had an off day yet. So they, they played, they'll play tonight. Oh, but they okay. start this the year with four games. But they're one and two as of the recording of this. So they, mm-hmm. but they did score twelve runs in their second game. This so, lineup can score runs yeah, like a lot, even without Jimenez. This lineup can score a lot. Um, and here for for Royals fans, you guys won't hear this, but maybe go back and watch it. I believe tonight they will go up against uh, Shohei Otani tonight in that oh, uh, game. Right, He'll be pitching and hitting second for the Angels. So that'll be cool to see. I may I may tune into that just to watch him and and see what he does against that lineup. Yeah, I wonder if this team isn't a little fragile, not just the, in terms of depth. They're not a young team necessarily either. Abreu uh, mm-hmm. is is up there in age, and their rotation is relying on Keuchel Keuchel's and Lance one, yeah. Lynn, who are that's like their number two starter is Dallas Keuchel. Their number three starter is Lance Lynn. Uh, both of those guys are roughly Mike and I's age, <laughs> so not uh, not the youngest. No, they're not super old. Um, and and Keuchel but, is not a he's not an injury prone dude he doesn't no, be, you don't no. think of him like that no um so we'll see i mean i, I have a little bit of skepticism uh, in terms of uh how if people think that the white Sox will end, end up at the top of this division i think it's also possible that another injury derails their season and they end up second third not even reaching a wild card that kind of thing um or larusa being a bad manager. I think he's not a great <laughs> manager anymore. I think he's way old school. Uh, combine him with a, an injury of some sort and maybe uh, things don't go the way they hope. But let's hope that the, the Royals are able to take a couple uh, from that series. That'll be a three-game series at the end of the week. Uh, and then we will, uh, we'll see where the Royals really at are, at, are at in the division after, after this week. With these two important uh, divisional series this week, Mike, what are you looking hoping to see from the Royals? Well, uh, we already talked about the starting pitching. So my, my hope to see this week is better starting pitching, getting deeper into games, putting hitters away, and no free passes from that starting rotation. Um, if we can get solid starts from Duffy and Keller in these first two, uh, that'll put my mind at ease a little bit more as we continue to roll into so If I can see the Brad Keller that I saw last year and the year before that, that'll really calm me down on the starting pitching. I don't have high expectations for what Danny Duffy is going to give us this year, but if he can at least go somewhat deep into the game, that'll again, ease my mind a little bit. So really just better starting pitching overall. And you know, when Duffy's got his good stuff, he can roll. Um, oh, yeah. The problem is when he's got his average stuff, he struggles and when he's got his, but he doesn't have his good stuff at all. It doesn't have stuff at all. He really struggles. So let's hope he's got his, his good stuff come, uh, come the next start against Cleveland. Um, I hope that the offense gets back to the patient ways of its first of the first two games of the season. I hope they uh, grind out some at bats, the no walks thing that happened uh, in today's game, that's not helping. And so hopefully they uh, can stay patient against this uh, white Sox and Cleveland staff and bullpen and, and, and really generate these big rallies we've been seeing. And since Logan Ryan, isn't a 
much Logan Allen. Sorry, Logan Allen. Sorry, thinking of uh, something else. But uh, Logan Allen isn't gravely experienced. If you can be patient early in that game, you have a chance to really rattle him and get him out quickly. Um, as you know, younger guys tend to not be able to recover from that quite as much. Yeah, and we're talking like you know his first start of the season too. So he's you know uh, might be prone to uh, a few nerves in in, in that way. Uh, the way that it looked like Keller was, it looked a little bit like Singer was. Um, maybe he can, uh, maybe they can rattle him and uh, and then get deep, get into that bullpen and weaken it for the rest of this series. Although it's only two games, so let's hope they stay patient. All we need is some patience. Oh, yeah. Maybe this will become a theme of our, of our show. We'll just patience. Some, some just terrible singing. Ah. <laughs> uh. Oh, dude, when I was in Mexico this past week, the bar down the block did karaoke. Somebody did that song every single night. <laughs> Why'd you go there every night? I didn't go. You could just hear it from my house. <laughs> every night, somebody did Patience by Guns N' Roses. Good, good. Somebody so did knock on Heaven's door a couple times too. <laughs> huge down Bob, there. GNR is Bob huge down there. Oh, they must be, man, because they played Guns N' Roses. Pretty They're still cool. living in 1989. All right, to end it, we'll do our Just a Bit Outside segment. Uh, this is a segment where we talk about something that's interesting us outside of baseball this week. Mike, what's fascinating you outside the world of baseball? Uh, well, as you know, I just got back from uh, our spring break vacation in uh, San Carlos, Mexico, beautiful San Carlos, Mexico on the Sea of Cortez. And the thing that's been interesting me after that vacation and really um, even before that is something called slow travel. And if you've never heard about or learned about slow travel, the basic idea behind it is that you, when you do your traveling, you maybe try to extend your stays as long as you can. So don't go for a weekend or something like that. And the real big part of it is that you're not creating to-do lists while you're there. You're not writing a list of things. Oh, I've got to hit this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. You, the, the purpose of the travel is to connect with the local culture uh, and connect with your time there in a sense that you are learning to love a place like you were a local, if that makes sense. And so a lot of people who slow travel will take at least a week, sometimes months in, a, in a, the same place. And a lot of times they will completely avoid all of the tourist destinations and they will buy local food. They will make their own food while they're there. They will speak to locals to see what they do on an average day or for fun. And so we tried to do some of that while we were in Mexico. Now, that doesn't mean we didn't do any of the tourist stuff because we did, but uh, it was really nice to experience that, get to know some of the local people, eat the local food, which was phenomenal. And um, yeah, just take, take a little more time instead of thinking, oh my God, I got to get all this stuff done. So uh, read up on it if you're interested in it. Yeah, I think I, when I travel, no matter what I do, I always say like, there are a few days I'm not going to have anything planned. Like I do nothing mm -hmm. that's planned. And I just say, whatever I feel like doing that day, that's what I'm going to do, right? <laughs> yeah, and my, Morgan and I have, my wife Morgan, we've always set aside a day or two. And then it's usually towards the end of the trip. And then at the beginning of the trip, as soon as we meet somebody who lives there, we ask them, what, what do you think? What would you do if you had a day to just do whatever you wanted here? And then that always ends up getting the best stuff. We ended up going to a play in Chicago uh, and to a, they call the taste of Chicago, which is like this restaurant thing. Um, when we did that, we've done, gone to beaches that no other people are at in Greece because they're like, oh, you don't want to go to those beaches. That's where all the tourists are. Go to this one instead. Um, so yeah, getting, 
getting that info and not planning out your time can be, and you're not as exhausted at the end of the trip. Yes, you know? that's, that's why I do you it. felt really. like you just, did I just go to work for five days? Because all we did yeah. was run around from one thing to the next. Give me on a beach with a book and I'm just as happy as if I went to whatever event or activity somebody told me I should go to. <laughs> did a lot of that, by the way, bought a book on the history of the post office. It is a thriller. <laughs> you can tell what kind of boring ass people we are. We're like, <laughs> you got to read this book on the post office. It's great. Uh, anyway, uh, my just a bit outside this week is a question. I was watching an, an interview the other day with Seth Rogen, which is a weird thing to do, but sometimes I just like to watch interviews with actors and directors and people who make movies. And for some reason, I, I don't know why they, they asked him a question that I found fascinating and I've thought a lot about and I'm just, now thinking about it again and that is has the internet been a good thing for society and i'm like when they asked the question in the interview i immediately went no no right because you know i'm very i've been very down on the internet the last few years because uh even though i spend all day every day on it um because you know all the things you see that are terrible in the world basically go back to the internet except for the stuff that's like happening in syria which is also you can actually link to the internet right to misinformation spread on the internet myanmar um, <laughs> myanmar and and hong kong and even the arab spring which was sort of um created by the internet or yeah. really really organized on the internet has now turned in many ways very negative as a result of the internet right um and so it's just interesting to me that there was all this promise you know, people, it's the information superhighway. You'll have access to whatever information you want. And we, I guess we never considered that, like, you would also have access to whatever disinformation someone would create. And we never considered that maybe this is going to be a really bad thing as sort of networks of people who are filled with hate and, uh, and, and racism and these terrible ideas could then start connecting with each other much easier, right? Um, and it's become like a boon for recruiting for these terrible organizations. And I wonder like, but what's it done for us? Is it making people happier, right? Like, is it, is it doing like, it allows us to transmit information very quickly from one place to another, but we're using it to like share dog memes and, you know, pornography. But yeah, it's just one of those things that I, I want to ask myself that question continuously. Even if I spend all day on the internet, I want to ask, is this a good thing that we all have, that we have this? I'm not, I'm not 100% sold that it is. Um, so that's what I've been thinking about. That's been fascinating me this week. Yeah. And part of the problem, I think part of the issue is the positive things that come as, as a result of interconnectivity between networks are you so rarely hear about it. I mean, you just, they just aren't as publicized, you know, uh, a lot of them are interpersonal, right? Like, oh, I get yeah. to keep up with my friends and that sort of thing. Well, not just that, though. I mean, the, the sharing of medical technology. And, That's and the, the thing that I always come back to is like the medical information things. that can sort of, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. that, um, that also benefits society. You're never going to hear about any of those, you know, uh, not, and not as any fault of any media outlet or anything. It's just they, they're not things you generally write stories about. Hey, I shared Mrs. Goldfarb's x-ray with somebody in somewhere else over in a second and they caught this disease that i didn't see you know like although it's funny that a lot of doctor's offices still fax things um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that is insane to me. um uh, but yeah. what i find very interesting is you're right you don't hear stories about that sort of thing and yet people still believe the internet is like a good is like a public good and mm -hmm. it's like have we thought about why it would be then like are we're we just implicitly saying it is because we spend a ton of time on it and it's a fascinating technology like or have we actually thought through, have we weighed its positives and its negatives, you know, um, because I'd like to hear a conversation about that. So people who are smarter than me 
and who know a lot about like networks and what the internet's done, please put out a podcast or a documentary that's just about like, that just answers this question. Is the internet good for society? I want to know. Give me that opinion and I'll just, I'll take it. But that's all we have this week. Uh, weird way to end, I know. Um, that's all we have for this baseball podcast we just ended on. <laughs> Glad we could give everybody a nice existential crisis on the way out the door. Um, uh, but we'll dig more into like uh, the internet and wh- what it means to be alive and whether or not time is real um, <laughs> in our next episode. For, for this week, that's all we have. Uh, We'll uh, please make sure you follow us on Twitter or Facebook. We have a Facebook page now. Go ahead and like that Facebook page, subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll see you next week uh, on Royals Weekly. Go Royals.